Welcome everybody to Learn With All. Today we're joined with Amanda Layden, founder and CEO of the Firebrand Institute and Pierre DePaz. Uh, we're gonna get into her work and her thoughts today. And I wanna thank everyone for tuning in. Uh, Amanda, uh, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Sweet. So for people who don't know, there is this thing called a pink tax that exists. <laughs> and when I first read of it, I was like, why does this exist? This seems weird, seems kind of unfair, but at the same time, you know, maybe it does make sense considering the people who make laws. So, but can you define, <laughs> can you define what the pink tax is, your thoughts on why it exists, and then let, let's let's go from there. Yeah, there are certain um, items we buy, and by we, I mean people who identify, <clears throat> excuse me, it's still early in my time, so my voice is waking up, but um, people who identify as women, we get taxed on certain products that men don't get taxed on. Mm -hmm. It could be as basic as things like our deodorant. It could also be our um, you know, feminine hygiene products that we need. Um, there's a lot of different products that fall under that. And uh, why does it exist? That's a great question. Um, it's because I believe that we are based on a system which is more of a patriarchal system. And um, at any point in this conversation, if you find value in it, please subscribe. It is hugely beneficial and it tells Google and everyone out there that this is content worth watching. Thank you for everyone thus far who has commented, liked, subscribed, and told their friends. You know, the people that make the decisions and make the laws decided we're going to tax these things because we can. We also, as women, um, we are the largest consumer of goods in America. You know, we make yeah. most of the decisions. We make 80% of the buying decisions, 80 or 90% of the buying decisions. Don't quote me directly on that. Um, it's probably shifting every month, but, um, you know, it's a problem. It's a real big problem. And, you know, just if we, if we put that aside and we just take it down to feminine hygiene products, anybody who has um, a uterus that has a cycle that has a period every single month needs certain products. Um, we just do, you know, that's mm -hmm. our biology. And it's ridiculous that in many states still, I think it's something like 34 states, tampons, feminine hygiene products are still taxed. Like these are things that we actually need for our bodies to function and they're still being taxed. It's just, it's ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah, the it's also being taxed at a premium, like it's like a luxury item. I think in most states, Correct. I was reading about one. It's like it's not like oh, it's like a one percent tax. It's like it's still weird if it's a one percent tax. They're like, no, this is like buying like a Corvette. Like you're getting you're getting yeah, taxed right. for something quite nice. Right, I mean, and these are essential items, right? So yes, um, there's a lot of there are a lot of um, change makers and people that are doing a lot of good work out there on the ground um, that are trying to change the laws in many states so that um, these products can be either free or affordable. Um, you know, you just think about it from a realistic standpoint of if people who identify as men went through the same thing every single month and they needed something that's essential, I'm pretty sure those laws would be off the books. Yeah, maybe. I, I'm not for it, so I don't know who are these men who think that it's appropriate. I just, I just wonder, you know, who sat down and thought, you know what, let's let's tax this as a premium for this group of people that, you know, they everyone has women in their lives. You know, like these women yeah. are going to come and say something to them, <laughs> you know? <laughs> right. I mean, you know, you think about it, the work that mm -hmm. is being done around it in the legislature, in the legislatures across America, one of the ways in which they've been able to combat the tax or take it off the books is that they are going to the men that are the legislators or the um, you know people in the states and saying, do you have a mom or do you have a sister? Do you have a daughter? More often than not, the answer is yes. 
And then they explain why this is very ridiculous. And imagine if, you know, your, your wife, mom, daughter had to choose between, um, you know, getting this essential product or something else because the tax didn't allow them to afford that, you know, like had to choose between food or, you know, a tampon, what would you, what would you say to them? And they're like, well, that's ridiculous. Nobody should have to choose. And people do have to choose every single month. And, you know, it's something like you can buy a chapstick, which isn't taxed, but then you have these essential items, which are, uh, so yeah, it's a, it's, it's wild to think about. And it's, you know, it's an issue that does affect many people in America. Yeah. It, it doesn't make much sense to me to make it harder for people to live and <laughs> prosperous and have a good life. Especially right? when, you know, it's like, I think when I was in college, they would just like throw out condoms like candy. It's like, why is that? <laughs> why is that free? But this stuff that people need, and it's a big deal if you don't have it. Like it's, I think, yeah, I think it's uh, in history. They talk about like, like managing, you know, cycles just says that one thing to focus on is like the managing cycles. And then like the, 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 the pill is like some of the biggest things and allowing women to to, I don't know, like stand up or whatever. I don't know like the correct words. I'm not a woman, but the, like it, there were turning points in, in, in women history where when they had the pill, when they had reproductive health and rights, that things, things generally like improved for women. Oh, absolutely. I mean, yeah. I mean, you, you just think about if you are a woman and you identify as that, what you go through every single month. And if you didn't have access to that product, could you go to work? Could you take care of your children? Could you go to the grocery store? I mean, there's just basic things that people need in order to live and survive. And so taxing that at a premium or not having, you know, as you said, like people are throwing at condoms in college, not, you know, why not? Why not in every workplace across America, regardless of where you work, why aren't there free tampons or free pads or free whatever people need? It's, you know, you go like when I go to the, I work on site with clients a lot. So when I go to the bathroom, I'm looking around just to see what is there for people to have access to. And it's a basic thing. You know, I, I have a client that's manufacturing and, um, you know, it's very interesting to see their, their bathroom situation and what are they giving the female employees that need to come off the line, um, to go, you know, if, if they're in the middle of their cycle or whatever it is, are they actually offering those products to these people that are hourly workers that, you know, need to go back on the line and, um, and work. And oftentimes it's like, no, they, they don't exist. They're not there. There's other things in the bathroom, but not tampons, pads, and everything else that people need. I, th I think of it, if I was an evil, selfish person offering these things would be the most evil, selfish thing I could do. Cause then people would go back to work faster and be right. healthy, happier to do more things. But people don't <laughs> think that way. It's like, it's like they're the, the dumb type of evil, selfish where, you know, they don't think if you give people the things they need, they can do, you know, a better job or just, you know, live happier, which results in better results. And employers are um, afraid to talk about female issues, right? So um, anybody, again, who has a uterus, most people are going to have a period, period, end of story. There's like no getting around it. That's our biology. It's what happens. Um, when we go into offices, you know, with Firebrand, when we talk about, um, we talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion and belonging issues, and there's things that just have been taboo. You know, employers aren't talking about periods. They're not talking about menopause. They're not talking about, um, you know, uh, diseases that women might have like endometriosis. They're not talking about how that affects their quality of life and work and what they can put into place to accommodate 
women to be able to have a more comfortable work environment, to be able to approach their bosses or their employers about any type of issue they might have. They're not providing, if they're not providing the basics, then they're certainly not having those conversations to see what could be accommodating for the people that are actually doing the work, whether it's um, at the highest levels or down, all the way down to the manufacturing floor. I think the one thing that really surprised me as I, over, over time, I don't know what this is, but my female friends will tell me <laughs> we'll have conversations about these things. And I think it's more like their boyfriends and husbands don't. And I'm I don't care. Like, I'll talk about anything. I, if it affects your life, I would I want to hear about it if it's negative. And so one thing that I heard is that it's like it's a, it's a real struggle, even when they talk to doctors to get them to care. You have to like find <laughs> you have to, there was one person who had to see three or four different doctors just to find one that would listen to her and, and actually try and do some tests to figure out what was causing the problem. They were like, oh, it's endometriosis. I'm going to do these types of things. It's like, well, do you know it? Have you like, have you done any testing to, I mean, it sounds like it, but it's not. And then like the last doctor was able to find it was like some other thing. And you just had to take like a special type of pill every month and it takes care of it. But it took four, five, four doctors. And so imagine going through your day and you have to take time off to go to the doctor four different times. Yeah. And like, you don't, you don't have that much sick time in America as a standard. You don't have that much vacation time. And that's just to get the thing so you can stop suffering. And then the doctors themselves, while you're getting there, imagine you do have all that bullet to get there, and then they're not even listening for, for you know, three of the four or four of the five, whatever it was. And it, that was really surprising to me, like how hard you have to fight oh. to get there, to get there and be ready. And then the doctors themselves, or, you know, in this case, it's also like the, the job, like offer not the flexibility to do these things, but there's like multiple things that are getting in the way. And, and then you still have to fight to be heard and get the treatment you need to be healthy and, and happy and, you know, have a good life. Yeah. Which is, it's just a crazy. I mean, it happens time and time again, you know, with um, period to pause, you know, my other uh, company that I run, uh, I have a podcast where I talk to um, people about issues, mainly in the healthcare system, and also helping to equip um, women and other folks to uh, gain their voices back and take back their agency. It took, I have a disease called adenomyosis. It took them about 20 years to diagnose me. And um, I probably saw Oof. I mean, 15 to 20 doctors over the years who just told me nothing's wrong with you. You're, you just have bad periods. And adeno is a disease that doesn't get diagnosed very frequently because doctors aren't trained in it. OBGYNs don't know what it is. Um, and, um, you know, it's still to this day, I'll go to a doctor and they're like, you have what, what is that? Um, and so just imagine, so, you know, um, for people who can see me, you know, I'm an educated white woman. And I was like, so I've been dismissed for 20 years in this system, 20 years. And I suffered greatly, you know, like the disease is debilitating. Um, you know, it happens with your cycle. So every month when you have your period, I would literally be doubled over in pain, vomiting, um, couldn't move. And this happens every single month. <laughs> for three days, every single month for three days. So I run my own business. So I'm able to manage my schedule and see clients when I want to see them, or I would have to manage my travel schedule around when I was getting my period as well, which is ridiculous because doctors dismissed me. And I'm like, you know what? Listen, I know something's wrong. Like, this is not what other women are experiencing. Like, are, is everybody else doing this? Like every single woman in the world who has their period is doubled over in pain, vomiting, can't move, needs pain meds every single month. This is what other women are experiencing. That can't be right. Um, and so finally I had, I found a doctor who was like, wait a second, you have these, like these four things that are presenting themselves. 
huh, I think you have a disease called adenomyosis. And so I managed to go and get an MRI. Sure enough, I do. And, um, but by the time they caught it for me, it was diffused, meaning it was everywhere in my uterus and it was starting to grow into other organs. So it was too late for them to do anything for me. And part of why I do what I do with period to pause is because not only do I want to educate um, doctors and clinicians and people to have a more human centric approach to patients, I also want women in particular to be able to understand how to use their voice to navigate a system that was not set up for them in the first place. So um, it, but, you know, I think about those folks that, you know, we were talking about manufacturing, for example, we can go back to that. If you're working on the manufacturing floor and you have a disease like I had, I don't even know how you're doing it because it is debilitating. And then if you can't talk to your employer about it, if you're getting dinged because you're taking time off work every month because you have to, because you can't move, um, I just, it's, it's untenable. And so I have this belief that until we really start to give equity and access to healthcare for women, we can't be equitable anywhere else in society. We can't be equitable. We can't have pay equity in organizations. Um, we, you know, there's, there's, we can't do it because we're not even talking about the issues that we face on a daily, monthly, annual, you know, throughout our lifetime basis. And then we have a system which still says, oh, the woman doesn't know her body. And let's tell her she doesn't know what she's talking about. She's hysterical. She doesn't know what she's talking about. Yeah, that was the big label. If as you look back in history, when when women would you know be acting in a way that some people didn't like, they would just say, "Oh, you're his, you're being hysterical." I think even Rose is it Rose Kennedy, like one of the Kennedys, one of the Kennedys, uh, like Joseph Kennedy, JFK, etc. She was acting a little hysteric in their view until they lobotomized her. Like yes, just yeah, and so you can. Imagine that times like, uh, you know, affinity, all these different people having similar things go on where it's like, oh, you're having a problem. Oh, well, you're, you're just being hysteric. Calm down. And mm -hmm. uh, it's I'm glad things are better now. I'm, I'm glad we don't live in those times. But, you know, it would it'd be even better if people didn't have to make those trade offs. Like, am I am I going to be able to keep my job this month or am I going to suffer? Like right. that, fundamentally, that's what you're doing. Like, am I going to go to work, underperform compared to everyone else who's not having this problem, and then get dinged on this, make less money than other people because of this? Because you know, for whatever reason, employers, for the most part, they're not. When they deal with in mass, they don't really seem to be good at looking at people individually and thinking, oh, okay, they're having a down day, but nine times out of ten, they're doing a great job. Yeah. Why? Why do you focus on that one in ten? I think that may be a human thing. But then I hear about what's going on in Amazon manufacturing where people are having to go to the bathroom in bottles and stuff yeah. or when there's a tornado coming they're not allowed to leave and it's like i don't understand how companies can get in the way of people's health and their ability to live in this way mm. and i think maybe that's that's like a corporation thing because i'm reading howard zim's I, I had it somewhere near me howard zim's history of the u.s like people's history of the mm -hmm. u.s and it's like well i wonder if it's like a systemic thing where the u.s was built on corporations like we're all like like that's kind of how we were and so like maybe that's like our paradigm like like the us is really built for corporations then over time people have been demanding more and more stuff and we've been getting like more people as the center of things and like that's maybe the trend i don't know but it is weird that the corporations can just run ham on people for so long and for, for so pervasively to the point where like people are like almost like work to death yeah i i wonder if there's going to be a time in the future where corporations or organizations are going to 
start to be fined or be responsible for the stress um, and the duress they're putting people under. I mean, we're seeing it a lot right now, right? I mean, we just came out of a pandemic where people weren't connected and people are going back into the office. Organizations are calling their folks back into the office, not thinking about the repercussions of what that looks like. We're seeing an unprecedented amount of burnout and stress with folks. And part of it is because of the demands. And I think also, you know, we're society and the world is changing at such a rapid pace, you know, thinking, think about like chat GPT, how quickly that, that, that came out and was adopted and what that's doing to um, the workplace. There's these advancements that are happening all the time. And yet we're expecting human beings and their brains and everything else to keep up with what's happening. And then there's further demands with all of the change. And then organizations are still expecting this level of productivity without saying, wait a second, how do we look at these people like human beings? Because that's what they are. Um, and figure out a way to accommodate them so that we're not putting them under such an immense amount of pressure and stress and burning them out. I don't know. I hope in the future, more organizations start, start to take stock and say, how do we actually still, you know, from a a point of view of, yes, of course, they still want to make money, but how do we also put the human being first? I'm seeing a shift in more socially conscious organizations where that is starting to happen. But yeah, you're right. I mean, it's it's the history of, of how we got to where we got to. It is fascinating. And also it's like, well, what's the future of all of this? Mm -hmm. uh, my one, one avenue I think about sometimes is that what if some of these like mega corporations, these monopolies just grind people down to extract as much value. I mean, that doesn't sound too surprising as capitalism, but, right. and then AI can come in and then do that work and they won't complain. And then, so, so people are left with these like potentially generational trauma for hundreds of yeah. years. And like the corporation is kind of like living like these Elysium type, you know, places with like a couple of fat cats having a good life. Um, hopefully that's not the case and th things go in a better know. direction, but um, that I, I could see that being a real possibility which is sad. Yeah. I mean, you, you bring up this concept of intergenerational trauma and it's, it's real. You know, we, we talk about it, um, in terms of like our bodies, our soma, you know, how we hold things in our body based on, you know, what our grandmas, our moms or whatever, whomever passed down. We also see it in terms of human behavior and what people are afraid to do in organizations. I think about it in terms of when we walk into an organization that has a really crappy culture, you know, a really toxic culture. Oftentimes like the leaders who actually created that culture aren't there anymore. Yeah. It's, it's a funny study. Uh-huh. And it's just like, oh, well, this is, we behave like this. Why? And nobody's questioning. Nobody's using critical thinking skills going, well, why does this exist in the way that it exists? Why are we all behaving in this way? Somebody, I was talking to somebody, was it yesterday about, um, yeah, it was yesterday. There was a study done I can't even remember where it was. And I think it was with um, chimpanzees and they put the um, bananas, the, right? The banana. And then they fire hosed the monkeys mm -hmm. and um, the new generation of monkeys was born and they put the banana out and it was, they weren't taught and there was like no reason why, but they wouldn't touch the banana either. And it's just like, isn't that fascinating? So when we look at that from the like, you know, animal kingdom, and then we put that onto human beings, all the other things that are being passed down to us from an individual level. And then you look at that as a system wide and organization level. And, and a lot of us aren't even addressing it. 
you know, organizations no. aren't addressing it. We're not addressing it as individuals. Um, so yeah, it's fascinating. It's, it's fascinating. And I think people are becoming more conscious about, um, why they behave in the way they behave, how that translates into being leaders, how that translates into leading people and teams. Um, but not enough people are thinking about it. Yeah. I think the, the really interesting thing about that, that study that was done is that they'd start with the, the bananas on this platform and they'd let the monkeys get to it. Then they'd hose them. And then they would get it to the point where they were like, okay, don't go on the platform. Then they would start introducing new monkeys and they start filtering out the old ones. So you got to a point where people were just, you know, living through that habit, but no one there was currently there when they were yeah. what we're talking about. But it's like, I think that's particularly interesting where like the people who started it in this study, were just slowly phased out and it was like nothing like nothing yeah. there was keeping them there there was no hose there was no indication but it was just the the habit of doing that kept them doing what they were doing which is interesting uh, but I, w I wanted to uh we're talking about social conscious companies coming out and sometimes i see people like amazon they're like oh wow we care about you know, I know black lives matter or what have you but they're also doing these horrible things like pe locking people in when there's tornadoes yeah. how do how do we know when these corporations aren't just using this social conscious stuff that we clearly care about as a, as like a weapon against us so that they can, you know, make more money and like keep doing their weird stuff versus the companies that are actually caring to do good stuff as a consumer, as someone who's just like going about their day? How do we differentiate between the two? Um, I'm not sure if there's a formula to differentiate, yeah. but I, th I think as a human being, we kind of gut check it and we know. You know, like it's, it's, there's, there's something very inauthentic about you know, Bezos saying that, that, you know, he cares about whatever it is, you know, pick a topic. And then he's one of the wealthiest men on the planet. And then people aren't being, you know, being allowed to go to the bathroom and come off the, the line. Like, I mean, you can all, we can all, and, and, you know, we as human beings have a choice. Like, are we going to buy from Amazon? I would venture to guess that a lot of people still do. I do. I'm guilty of it. It's easy. You know, it's like, oh, well, I need my toothpaste. And so I'm just going to get it. It's going to be delivered to me this afternoon and I don't have to leave this computer. But um, how do we know? I think it's, you know, people are getting smarter and smarter. We have, you know, this in our pockets where we can do all of the research that we want to do, whether it's true or not. Um, and I think people are using, um, especially I see younger generations kind of going, wait, is this company who they say they are? Who are the leaders? What does the board look like? Um, how do they treat their employees? Uh, you know, is the tagline about their, their um, you know, environment or social, you know, whatever it is that they're putting out there, their, their socially, their social justice platform or their corporate um, lingo, is that actually true? Does it feel true? Is it right? Do I know somebody who works at that company? How do they treat them? You know, people talk now. It's, it's you know, we, when we talk to our organizations, the companies we work with, we're always like, you're one tweet or one TikTok or one Insta away from cancel culture. And so, you know, be very, very mindful about what you're putting out there and what you're saying. But I don't know if there's a formula other than doing your research and just gut checking. I mean, we can, we can sense when something's off. Mm. Do you think if you were to compare the U S to other countries, do you think, how do you think we stack up when it comes to these issues? <laughs> I, I mean, I, I think we're, well, it depends on which issues we're talking about, but you know, I think we're super far behind on a lot of things. Um, and, you know, the, with with media, um, we're getting even more divided on, like, 
who's actually leading decision-making and we're not using our critical thinking skills, but, you know, for example, you take companies based out of Europe and there's a lot of things that from, um, let's just take France, for example, legally from an employee standpoint, there are a lot of things that, um, you can't do with your employees. Um, and there's a, there's a cap on the work week. There is, um, you even look at like their food system and how many, um, preservatives and additives they can put in their food compared to what we have here in the United States. There's just basic things where they're looking at society as in a system as a whole, because it's all interconnected that we seem to have somehow some way in America, because I guess because of capitalism and the way we're brought up to be very individualized, we've forgotten that all of these things are interconnected. And so when we make one decision over here, it's going to affect something over there. So, I mean, I think we have a long way to go with a lot of things. Okay. Let's go back to where actually where we started. We were talking a little bit about healthcare and being dismissed. I mean, is there anywhere in the world where the healthcare system is perfect? No. However, you would think that uh, we as human beings would want to look at giving people basic healthcare and having it be a right for people. In a lot of countries, it's a right to be able to see a doctor. People here in America can barely, as we were talking, you know, you have to take time. If you have two weeks vacation, if you have that, if you're an hourly employee, you might not even have that. You have to take time off to go see a doctor to get something diagnosed. And that's why we're seeing people get sicker and sicker and sicker because people can't afford to go do that. You know, just basic human things. You're like, why, how did we get here? Oh, because there's a lot of companies making a lot of money off of us staying sick. So I don't know if I even answered your question. I went around a long way. Um, but, you know, yeah, I think we've got just in general, I think in the world, we need to kind of, I'm wearing my human shirt actually today, mm -hmm. but we, um, you know, we just need to get back to basic humanity. Yeah. Is there, are there states in America that you think are like moving in the right direction? It seems Minnesota is on fire in terms of being progressive. They're, they're, they're having fun over there. Um, you know, I think, yeah, I think there's some places where we can take, um, we could take some lessons. You know, I'm not sure that any state is getting everything right all the time. And, and, you know, politically speaking, people are going to be pissed off one way or the other. <laughs> like, you know, it's like, um, I'm in California, so um, there are some things we're doing here. I guess the governor in particular is looking at some things around the environment. You know, we've got a real issue here with drought and, um, you know, the Colorado River is drying up. And, um, you know, there's a lot of issues here that there's that people are starting to tackle, but it's not necessarily the politicians that are tackling it. It's oftentimes communities that are saying, well, you know, our landscape, for example, has changed or we can't farm this crop anymore and we need some help and supports. You know, what I see, it's less about the um, the people that are in the positions of power in the political spheres, but it's really the groundswell of people in communities that are starting to make a difference. And it gives me a lot of hope when I see that, you know, for example, there's something going on here in California with an indigenous community um, where their land um their land, they're not able to, you know, farm something right now. And they're, they've taken to, um, you know, working together to cr try to find a solution. Um, it makes me think about, uh, there's a book called upstream. I don't know if you've read it. Um, and it's about, you know, how we critically think and start to solve problems upstream rather than downstream. And so, you know, each of us, where whatever our issues are, whatever we think is going on in our community, wherever we want to see change, we all have a voice 
and we all have the ability to make a difference um, if we choose to do that and not yeah. leave it to other, not leave it to the external forces. But yeah, if, if you haven't read the book Upstream, it's really interesting because it's like, we have, I think to a certain extent, we're losing the ability to critically think we're, you know, one of the biggest things that employers say to us all the time when we go into their organizations is the skill we need people to have is critical thinking. And it's like, okay, well, you know, great. And how do we help instill that in folks and how do we help them problem solve in a way that um, really creates new systems, innovation, everything else. Um, and it just got me thinking about the book upstream because it's like, why are we trying to solve something downstream when we can look at it, um, before the problem actually exacerbates itself. So, yeah. yeah. So I don't I know. Think... To, yeah. I'm not sure that any, anywhere is doing any state is doing, I, I don't know. I'm sure somebody has a scorecard of, and a grade of what States are doing better versus yeah. the others. I, what I see is when people, when people at the community level start to say, this just isn't working for us anymore. It, we see it in organizations now too. When employees are feeling more empowered um, to say, why does this system or structure, why is this in place? Like, this doesn't make any sense. Um, and that's where, that's where I, I see like the biggest change. That makes sense. I think that as one, one, one uh, a lot of California problems are like kind of obvious ones to solve too. If you guys just see desalination plants, like what they did in Israel, you guys would be a net surplus of water and everything would be great. But uh, they tr they <laughs> did, they started doing them in the nineties, then closed them down because they're like, we'll never have droughts again. But uh, yeah, what? Oops. So <laughs> a, a couple of years ago, a thing happened with Roe v. Wade, and as some some listeners are going to know what this is, some people aren't, and so if you could just tell us. What was Roe v. Wade and the significance of it as it relates uh, to women? And then we'll dive into it. Yeah. So, I mean, it was a case that came before the Supreme Court um, and um, really gave women the access when when yeah, it really gave women the access to have free. Uh, sorry, to have safe abortions. Um and um, became law across the United States. And then a year ago, so we're in Ju June now, a year ago, um, the Dodd decision. So um, that was at a federal level overturned. And so now um, where we are is that states have the right to um, deny women access to abortions. And so state by state, we're seeing um, I'm not a legal expert. I should I should put that out there. I'm not a lawyer. I'm not a legal expert. So there's plenty of people out there that actually know the ins and outs of this law and the legalities of what's going on. Um, I actually interviewed somebody on my podcast recently who has the intersection of tech and law, and she is tracking what every single state is doing. And it is a lot of work and it's wild. But yeah, what it basically says is that states can go, nope, we're not going to allow any access to abortions, or we're going to say at six weeks or at 12 weeks or whatever it is. And so obviously, you know, that's affecting a lot of um, women across the country, and it's mainly disproportionately affecting women of color. What is the Dodd decision? I know about Roe v. Wade. I don't know about Dodd, actually. Well, that's a great question. And I'm like, I should have... Um, I'm going to, I'm actually going to read it because it's because <laughs> I am, right, I, skip it. yeah, no, I mean, I am not a legal expert. Um, but really what, what it basically said is that, um, they were, so the court issued a decision, what June 20 last year, June, 2024, 
uh, sorry, June 24th, 2022. And it basically reviewed the constitutionality of Mississippi's gestational age act. So banning most abortions after 15 weeks of pregnancy with the exceptions for medical emergencies and fetal abnormalities. So Dodd actually came through and then obviously that overturned Roe. So that was um, a case that happened in Mississippi. So, you know, people really should do a little bit of um, digging and research into it in terms of why that is important. Um, because, you know, for almost well, how many years was that? 40 years, 40 years. Yeah, it was like 50 years with the if, Roe v. Wade one. I know. Like, wasn't it 1973? Yeah. Yeah. So, I think it was like something like that from the seventies. Yeah. So I know Roe whatever, v. Wade like was upending something from the seventies. I know that much. Yeah. Roe v. Wade was 1973. So um, however many, yeah, whatever, close to 50 years. I can't do math that quickly. Um, <laughs> um, yeah. Women had the right to um, get a safe abortion. Now, what we're seeing obviously is that um, what's happening is that what, where that is really affecting women is, for example, if you are, you know, we'll go back to the manufacturing case. Um, and, um, you know, if you're, let's say you work on the line and you already have two children at home and you're barely being able to feed your family and then you get pregnant for whatever reason, I mean, pregnancies happen all the time <laughs> when people have sex. And even if sometimes they're using contraception, they still happen. And so, uh, you know, let's just say that you make a decision that, um, you can't have a third child and you're in, for example, a Southern state right now, you're going to have a real problem not being forced to have that child because you no longer have access to abortion. And it's, it's really kind of scary. It's, we've been talking about it in terms of in organizations we work with, we've been talking about it, um, around what does that actually mean for your employees? What does it mean for your employees to be able to not have access to healthcare? What does it mean for your employees to um, have to have another child and not be able to come and work? What does it mean when women are, you know, um, being forced to, again, have, let's say have a third child and if they're not able to care for that child, there are not enough support systems in place to help families in America. And even outside of whether you, whether you believe women should have safe and healthy access to abortions or not, there's just not, I mean, we don't have mandatory uh, parental leave in America. We are so far behind all of the, the rest of the world where they give parents time off to care for their children. You know, there are people that have, that have babies now and they have to go back and work two or three days after they've had a child in this country. That is ridiculous. And yet we say that we're a country that actually cares about families and we don't because we don't have, we don't have um, daycares in place for children. There are other countries in the world where they give access to um, childcare and preschool and pre-K and all of those things for free to whatever family in the country needs it. And so you see that these children are able to grow up healthier. I mean, just think about, um, and I know I'm getting off track a little bit, but think about like what happened with the formula crisis recently. Uh, what uh, was it last summer too? So, you know, there was, um, a shortage of baby formula in America and, um, we were, 
there were some laws on the books that we couldn't get formula from other countries based on, I don't know, something historical. And so finally, you know, Biden lifted that so that we could get formula from like China and other countries. But the people that suffered the most were people in um, underrepresented and underprivileged communities, because once formula came into America, the people that had the means to actually get access to the formula to feed their children were able to get the formula. But then we have places across America where we have, um, you know, food deserts and uh, where there's low income um, communities where they don't have access to things and they weren't able to feed their children. Like these are the things where it's like, we're so focused on the wrong thing, I think. Um, even with the Dodd decision here, and, you know, obviously I said, we're coming up to a year, a year now where, um, it basically overturned, uh, Roe and, you know, we've got this, um, unnatural focus on something when we could be focused on how do we help support, um, the most underrepresented communities to be able to actually feed, clothe, house and school their children. Like, I don't know. I mean, I think we've gotten off track in terms of, again, going back to being human. How do we help support uh, humanity in a way that is effective? So, yeah. So back to um, now, you know, what's happening in certain states. I don't have my eye on every single state in, in America. Um, what I know is that there are a lot of grassroots and other organizations that are helping, still trying to help women to be able to have safe and healthy access to abortions for whatever reason, whether it's they can't afford another child, whether the child that or the fetus that they're carrying um, has some type of defect. You know, we're hearing also just stories of just sheer, um, it's just awful. Like the things that women are having to choose right now, their life or the fetus because, you know, they have an ectopic pregnancy and in Florida, they won't treat them because it's considered an abortion. So they won't, I, a woman literally got told, wait until you're bleeding out, sit in the car, wait until you're bleeding out until you can come in and we can care for you. In what world is that, nor is that okay? <laughs> like, so anyway, um, I, I mean, that was a long rant and ramble about how we started, which is Roe v. Wade and Dodd. And, um, now states have the ability to regulate whatever they want to regulate and take away, uh, rights that had been on the books since 1973. Yeah. Is there, <clears throat> can you steal man the benefit of states deciding if they want to regulate it, you know, either pro or against abortion? What was the question? Sorry. Can you steal man how the states being able to regulate it themselves would be a good thing? I don't, I mean, I don't know how it's a good thing. Mm -mm. I don't know why something that was um, passed at a federal level now that goes to the state's level. I mean, the only, the only good thing I can think about it would be, you know, people getting, so up in arms about the lack of access to the healthcare they need that um, people start to groundswell and really pay attention to who they're voting in at the local level. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I don't know. I don't know how it's a good thing. Um, the, the things that are even more alarming to me is that now in certain states, they're starting to come after things like um, contraception. Uh, um, access to IVF for people who want to start a family, but for whatever reason, they haven't been able to naturally. 
Um, those are the things that uh, when I interviewed the woman that was on my podcast, she was saying, those are the things they're watching because, um, you know, it's like, okay, this is whatever the siren call for certain communities for the religious right, whatever, you know, abortion is the thing is the thing, but that's not really the thing. I mean, it, you know, abortion wasn't even an issue until the what late mid eighties, mid to late eighties, um, where certain politicians were running for office and, um, you know, a community of evangelicals were like, wait a second, let's figure out how we can create one issue and rally people behind an issue. And abortion became the issue. Up until then, it wasn't even talked about in religious circles, right? So it would be, it was actually a way for them to put a candidate into office and create a single issue that people could rally behind. When you, there's um, a couple of podcasts and things out there where they talk about this and it is fascinating how the marketing machine of like politics hung on to this to become like the, yeah, the, like the siren call issue for a certain party and a certain religious sect, but it wasn't even an issue until then. Nobody even talked about it. Like, it wasn't like, oh, this is a thing that, um, we, we can't, you know, we, we can't do in our communities. People were having safe and healthy abortions. So, um, anyway, I don't know. I don't know how it's a, I don't, I don't know how it's a good thing unless people really start to pay attention to local politics. I don't know. Yeah. Is, is for some reason, Planned Parenthood is synonymous with, uh, <laughs> abortions, but I believe it does more than that. Like it does more than it's like one, it's like maybe like 2% of what they can actually do. Like yeah. most of it, like not related to that. So can you unpack what Planned Parenthood actually is about? Cause I think that's also one of those things that they, like people who are, uh, I guess it's not pro-choice. It's not the other one. No, I don't know what the other one is. Thank you. Um, they seem to not like uh, Planned Parenthood. Yeah. And it, I don't know how historically Planned Parenthood became synonymous with abortions because they do a lot of other things. Um, you know, they really help um, women who may not, you know, may, may be low income to, you know, get um, access to having, um, you know, their annual pap smear or to, um, you know, being seen for a multitude of reasons, helping them even if they are pregnant throughout the pregnancy to get the care they need. Um, so they, you know, they really have been in terms of, you know, communities and where they've been kind of situated in communities, they've really been helpful for um, women to be able to have access to the healthcare they need in general, in general, you know, there's a lot of things that we as women, um, you know, just based on our anatomy um, that we have to, we have to check, you know, we have to be mindful of, you know, it's even like things like when women have a baby and maybe their baby isn't able to latch or their baby isn't able to breastfeed, even helping to educate. How do you, how do you safely breastfeed? How do you, um, how do you help the baby to get the nutrients they need? Like there's a lot of things that they actually do to really provide healthy and safe access to healthcare. And they're, they're needed for a lot of communities. So you're right. It's like 1% or 2% of what they do is abortions, but somehow they became synonymous with that. And I'm sure it was at one point, you know, just somebody trying to go after them for whatever reason, but it's, they're important. They're really important for women. 
in certain communities. Yeah, the the, the segues to this, like one of those temple things I wanted to talk about, which is maternity, like maternity deaths, like where the mom dies <sighs> as well is going up it's actually yeah it's 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 reprehensible and i think there was a 2018 i looked this up they literally passed a, an act in 2018 called preventing maternity deaths because of how bad it is to try and give states uh, the ability to like look into this like what's causing it because it's it's getting almost down to where it was in like the 18 1850s or something it's getting real real bad so uh planned parenthood should have an effect on helping people not die when they have a kid if yeah. and i think everyone should be on board with that that should be a bipartisan thing where you know if you're pro or, or pro-life or uh pro-choice or whatever you you want if you're having a kid to survive this and and whatnot what um do we know why it's getting worse i just i just saw the race and it's like it's ridiculous it's like it's literally like going back 100 years yeah so i think part of it is um you know we think about the systems and structures like we think about the medical system and the power structures at play. Um, and again, like this goes back to talking about women being dismissed. Um, so it's it's disproportionately affecting women of color, in particular black women and indigenous women. So their rates of maternal death and um, infant mortality are uh, significantly higher than white women. Um, and so, you know, part of it is and they're doing, there's a lot of people doing a lot of research on this right now, by the way. Um, there are people that are experts in this that are looking at why this is happening in America. I mean, in America in particular, our um, stats are worse than some third world countries. Yep. And that should be shocking and appalling to everyone. You know, why is it that a woman goes in and thinks she's going to have a safe and healthy birth and then she doesn't make it out of the hospital? So there are some policies um, in certain hospitals that are in place, for example, um, that a woman can't be in labor for longer than 36 hours. Okay, well, why? Um, it, yeah, it, it's a policy in certain places. Why? Mm. Nobody That's knows. Yeah. yeah. So even if a woman is starting to dilate and, you know, looking closer to being able to have the baby, um, you know, they'll automatically give her Pitocin, which speeds up at birth. I know several of my friends who have been given Pitocin where they've had to have an emergency C-section because the baby's heart rate is dropping and they need to get baby out as fast as possible. Mm. When that, I mean, it's, and it's like not one person, I know it's several. So it's like, wait a second, there's a problem there. And why isn't anybody addressing that issue? The other thing is, so there's a, a woman um, who wrote a book called Birthing Liberation. Her name is Sabia Wade. Um, the book is a really fascinating study on why this is happening, particularly to black women and, um, you know, what it is like the trauma. And there are a lot of laws that um, are racist laws that came in the United States. Um, historically, with um, the slave trade, women came over from different parts of Africa and they were uh, called granny nannies but they were doulas. And so they were very trained in childbirth and helping women have safe, safe and healthy births. And um, there were laws passed because um, in the Southern states where they didn't want these granny nannies to continue their practice and pass down their um, historical knowledge. And because the medical system was becoming the medical industrial complex that it is. And so they were like, if these women continue to have births at home, then we're not going to be able to make money out of the um, out of childbirth, right? So it goes back to you know being in this capitalistic society and having a system that was never set up for women in the first place, 
did I glitch again? No, you, you did a little, like you froze a little bit, but yeah, I could hear you through the entire way. So that was fine. Okay. I'm like, why is this so glitchy today, Southern California? Um, so, uh, <laughs> yeah, but it goes back to, you know, the, the systems and structures that were set up. You've got to look at, I, I always think you have to look at who set up the system in the first place and where's the money. Um, and so, yeah, I, I mean, I'm not a historian. I'm also not a researcher, but there are plenty of people doing amazing research out there right now to get to the bottom of why this continues to happen. And again, it goes, there are a lot of factors at play. I think one is a power play. You know, you think about who has authority in um, the hospital, it's the doctor and what do doctors look like. Often to this day, they're still older white men um, and they've been trained in a certain way and they're not trauma informed. They're not informed on the intersectionality, intersectionality of human beings. They're not, you know, there's a woman I he heard spoke about, speak about a year ago or year and a half ago. And she is one of the only black female IVF doctors in America that owns her own clinic. One of the only. So even like from that, and you think about the the um, journey for a woman to try to get pregnant and you don't see anybody like you who understands your culture, your history, um, your diet, uh, you know, everything else. And then you fast forward and now you're all, you're in the labor and delivery room and there's the power structures that play. You may only have, you know, the white male doctor who's dismissing you. I mean, I haven't had a kid. I wasn't able to have a kid, but um you know, even the dismissal that I felt through the process of the things that I was having to go through with my disease, I can't even imagine what it feels like if you're there and you look around and there's like, there's nobody that looks like you. They're not listening to you. You know, let's think about, there's a story in the public domain about um, Serena Williams. She almost died in the labor and delivery room because she was telling them, the doctors, like, something's wrong. I'm not feeling well. I'm not feeling well. I'm short of breath. No, no, no. You're just, you know, you're being dramatic. You're no, 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 nothing's wrong with you. Well, she had fluid in her lungs and she almost died. And you have the the woman, a woman who is one of the most well-known women in the world, one of the wealthiest women in the world, who's not being listened to in the labor and delivery room. What are the chances for everybody else? You know, it's like, it's, it's, and it, I, uh, again, I think it goes back to a lot of it is like how people are being educated right now within the medical system. It goes back to power structures, who has the ultimate say, and then this constant dismissal of women about our pain and knowing our bodies. Yeah. I've, I've been in the hospital myself and I, I wonder if just it might be, I, I think many doctors are very kind, loving people and they do yes. their best. Oh, but I, yes. But I also, I also think that doctors are probably the most well-meaning murderers on the planet like they they, they uh, many doctors have almost killed me i think i think it's just there's like a level uh, i think that, that i wonder to what extent well the, the numbers bear out what you're saying regardless but i wonder how much of it is just like we're not training the doctors well to just yeah. even listen to people like well because you know, i've experienced that as well where they're just they're you know i just was like all right well go away and i'll i just keep going until i find the one i like that will like challenge me but like listen at the same time and then i I stay in contact them with them for the rest of my life. Well, you, you think about it and, and it's like, okay, so again, you go back to who's making money, right? Who's making money out of the human body right now when, he, when you're sick, there are a lot of organizations, insurance companies. Insurance companies. I yeah. mean, there, there's a real reason to keep Americans sick, right? A lot of people are making a lot of money. So you think about that. And then you think about doctors are under, and I, by the way, I've had some amazing doctors. I am not dismissing doctors at all. One of my best friends is an ER doc. Like 
they're under immense pressure. They have seven minutes to see a patient. Like, seven minutes. How is that even like, how do you get to a level where you can even diagnose a human with our complex system that we're living in? They're also taught to look at us in a linear fashion, meaning, oh, you're talking about your arm, your arm hurts. Let's just look at your arm, but we're not looking at the rest of the body. And so there's that they're under immense pressure and stress. They have these you know, they're, they're making money out of everybody who's staying in the hospital. So there's reasons, you know, for people, it, there's reasons out of their control where they can't control who's actually profiting from that. And then, yeah, we're not teaching them in medical school to be trauma-informed and to have human-centric conversations. One of the things that we're doing now with our organization is that we are going out to um, doctor's office, medical practitioners, and trying to um, train them to be trauma-informed and to have conversations with that lens because it's so important. And you think, so let's go back to what we were talking about with especially black maternal death rates. You think about the trauma that if you are able to, if you do have a child and something goes wrong in the labor and delivery room, or you've been dismissed, or there's been a microaggression towards you, the trauma that gets passed down, the intergenerational trauma that gets passed down and the fear that gets passed down with the medical system, even if, you know, doctors are well-meaning, you know, there's a lot of layers and complexities to this. And um, I don't know what has to happen for the system to change. I think part of it is equipping doctors to be trauma-informed. And you know what I think we're also going to see these doctors and nurses and everybody else are burnt out. They're going to be leaving the system. Like I think in the next I don't know, call it five years, we're going to see a mass exodus of the medical community. And there's going to have to be a major shakeup in terms of how our hospital systems and everything else are run. That's, I, I mean, I'm seeing it already. I'm seeing a lot of doctors come outside of the system and try to go to, you know, individual payer type models outside of the, outside of insurance. But then we have a problem there because then we further delineate who has access and equity who has access to healthcare and who can pay and then we're further, you know, with other communities, we're, we're further alienating them because they can't afford that. So yeah. we've, yeah, we've got a major issue. Yeah. I think AI and that type of stuff will help because they'll be able to sift through information and make it easier for mm -mm. as a tool for doctors to spend less time, but also more impactful time with people. And then hopefully more doctors and stuff will, will step in the, it is interesting when you look at the history of insurance in particular, that it was doctors who blocked it. Uh, originally, doctors were like, well, we don't want the government having like one, like uh, United Healthcare. They, they blocked it because they were like united against or whatever. I forget the specific reason, but they were, they wanted to, they, they basically were happy with the existing structure. And at the same time, our our healthcare as it exists now as insurance, et cetera, came from World War II where you couldn't pay people more. So you'd offer people bonuses. And so I wonder, considering women made up the majority of the workforce in America at World War II, because you know, they were coming into it. I wonder to what extent, you know, women <laughs> women were, were a part of uh, the development of it because they were like trying to rope them in as well. But knowing how things work, I, I wouldn't be surprised if maybe they offered the healthcare benefits to like the men and then like the women got like, you know, kind of remedial uh, opportunities as well. But I do know that uh, World War II is where we really started seeing these things come about. It was basically the insurance, uh, 
but your business was like, oh, I, I can't pay you more, but I can offer you, you know, mm. your, your doctor for like a nickel instead of, you know, uh, you know, $10 or whatever and stuff like that came from there. But yeah, I think AI, this might be one of those areas where AI and machine learning, et cetera, will make it so that the, the load on doctors decreases so they can actually do very meaningful work. Because I think doctors have one of the highest suicide rates in of, of uh, career professions. It's, it's, it's less than veterans, but it's, it's quite high. Well, and I don't think any doctor comes into um, the field to be like, I, I want to dismiss humans and not do a great job. They come in from a, from an altruistic standpoint. Every doctor I know, a lot of doctors I know, I should say, knew they wanted to be a doctor from a very young age, that they wanted to help people, right? They come into it with that view, and then they're put into this system that isn't working for anyone. My concern with AI, with all of this, is who's tra who's training the machines, so if you don't have representation um, within AI with people that are doing the programming and everything else, that becomes an issue too. We, we see that. We've seen that play out, right? We've seen it play out with um, identification of humans. We've seen it play out in different ways. So, you know, in order, I think, to have, again, true representation, we really need to be able to bring more people into the STEM field um, so that everyone is represented and that, um, you know, we're, we're looking at human pathology in a different way. So, yeah, I mean, I hope, um, I think that it will help, um, a lot of, uh, you know, especially like you think about radiologists, for example, um, you know, that sometimes things just aren't visible to the human eye. So, um, helping them to be able to diagnose certain diseases at a faster rate. Um, I think that would be incredible and amazing. Where I also get a little bit concerned is where the um, funding dollars are going. You know, are they going to diseases? You know, you, you so you think about right now, like what's on the market, right? How many how many um, pills are there out there for erectile dysfunction? Like how many times do you hear a commercial about that? How many pills are out there right now to help women with endometriosis? How many pills are there right? You know, are out there right now to help women? Um, with fibroids or, you know, there aren't, they don't exist. And so, um, you know, we have to think about where the funding dollars are going to as well in terms of how do we tackle some of these um, things that are really like we were talking about endo or endometriosis or adenomyosis, really debilitating diseases for women. How do we ensure that, you know, early on we're putting the dollars where they need to be so that we can help human beings to be able to um, live ha happier, healthier lives. Um, and not enough of it is happening. It sounds like a business opportunity. If there are <laughs> not drugs in this way, then you know there's a lot of women out there with, a, as we discussed, massive purchasing power. It sounds like an opportunity for some enterprising people to come in and build companies to help uh, develop therapies to help out women in those ways. Yeah. And there are a few companies out there right now that, um, are starting, especially, you know, I know one with endo right now, um, where, um, they, they figured out the cell biology, um, in terms of how the cells are actually, um, operating, they kind of mimic cancer in a way, but, um, they're trying to bring a vaccine to market and they're an early stage company, but in order to do that, you know, you need a lot of money because you have to do clinical trials. You, you know, there's a lot of things you have to do in order to make sure that something like a vaccine for endometriosis works. Where we see where we're watching the funding dollars go right now is it to the B2C companies like period trackers and things like that. Those aren't necessarily solving huge issues. I mean, how many period tracker companies are, are there out there right now? I don't even know a lot. 
Um, but what about these other organizations that really need the funding dollars to go towards them to be able to solve real world issues? Not enough, I think, from a kind of B2B or I guess you would call it B2B if you're creating a vaccine from that standpoint. Um, but you're right. I think there's a lot of enterprising people out there that are especially women that are going, huh, this is a problem we need to start to look at and start to solve because this is affecting a lot of people's lives. Are you looking at venture capital dollars or are you talking like NIH funding? Um, well, so I was, so VC a lot, right. Is going more B2C and also with VC, um, you know, you've got to think about who makes up the VC companies and, um, what they care about. And, you know, there's a lot of times I've, and I've heard it from women time and time again, that are pitching them, um, where, um, you know, the men just don't understand the issues. And so they don't feel like it's a problem. And so they're not looking to put money behind it because why is it an issue? So there's that. And then NIH as well, you know, there isn't, I don't think NIH has like, um, a dedicated arm specifically of like women's disease research. Like, you know, I don't think it exists. Um, they put everything under the umbrella of like everything to do with women is like women and children and like women in maternal care. So, I mean, that's an opportunity right there too. You know, why don't we have something that's really focused on some of these diseases? I don't, I don't know. Um, and maybe it's going to take a woman to run, to run the NIH. I'm not sure, but, um, yeah, I, I think it's both. It's both and. Yeah. yeah. I imagine from the NIH standpoint, you wouldn't necessarily need a woman to, to run it. Or I think they're more, you just need their budgeting to change and then they would yeah. be required to, to run it differently. Right. Yeah. So you just, you just would need a lobby and, and bother people a lot. Yeah. 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 It sounds like, um, you know, some of us who are out there talking about some of these things are getting more, you know, I'm, I'm not a doctor. I'm not a medical professional. Like I'm not an expert in any of it. It's, you know, my period to pause was born because of my disease and because of what I experienced in the medical system. And then I was like, wait a second, what is everybody else experiencing? Like, I'm a educated white woman, as I said, and like, oh my God, what is everybody else doing? And one of the things I talk about is um, I ended up, my disease, ultimately, I ended up having to have my uterus removed because I got to the point where my doctor thought it was going to burst and probably take my life or cause some other internal damage. And um, when I got the bill for that surgery, so my surgery was done by, I mean, by a surgeon, but the, a robot, um, and which was also fascinating because um, when I walked into the, or they wheeled me into the OR, they pointed out the robot because I'm, I'm allergic to one of the drugs that they normally give people before they wheel them in because I can't take it. It's the amnesia drug. It, I lose like three days of my life. So I, I go in fully like awake and aware of what's happening. Um, and they pointed out the robot and I was like, what, that's, what's going to be operating on me. I mean, it was wild to see. Um, but anyway, when I get the bill, um, the, my surgery cost $196,000 that didn't include anesthesia. That didn't include the anesthesiologist. Now, everybody going through this surgery needs an anesthesiologist. You are under for, well, in my, in my case, I was under for three hours. You could be under for shorter or longer, depending upon how difficult the surgery is. Um, $196,000. I was like, what? Now I was an emergent case, as I said, but you think about people who don't have in health insurance and if they have to go through that, that will take them, that will take them to their knees. I mean, I don't know. I think a lot of America, you know, is living, you know, paycheck to paycheck or a lot of people living below the poverty line. And then if you're a woman where you have to get your uterus removed because it could take your life 
and then you get hit with that bill, what do you do? I think you can appeal and then you can itemize the bill and then argue with them point by point. There's also some, you could also, depending if you have like time up front, I believe like nowadays, like they're making it so like hospitals have to tell you how much things are going to cost. So you can kind of get a sense, like you said, 100,000, maybe it's like 97,000, but you know, that $3,000 difference adds up. But I believe that there are, you can like really, uh, you know, talk your way into reducing your bill significantly. I know people who've uh, talked it down like 97% when they don't have insurance. So then they're just left like, you know, of 100,000, like, you know, three grand. And that, that's a little bit more manageable. I can imagine it's just daunting for people. That's, I think that's what I was saying is like, you know, if you get that bill and you're, let's just say, you know, you're back to my example of like, you're on the line, you work for Amazon, you work in manufacturing, wherever you work and you get the bill and you're juggling children at home and you're trying to get back into health and you, maybe you don't have a paycheck because you are an hourly worker and then you have to go fight the system. I, people aren't doing it because they don't, one, they don't know they can. And two, it's just like, everything else is overwhelming. And by the way, when you have a surgery, like I had, it's an eight to 10 week recovery. So it's, it's not, I mean, it's a major surgery. It's not like, oh, we're just going to take out your uterus and you can go to work the next day. No, you can't lift anything that's above five pounds for 10 weeks. It, you can't, like, I couldn't walk my dog, you know, because he's 50 pounds and he could pull me over and rupture something internally. So it's, it's a big deal. And then you, then, and you feel like crap and then you're expected to go and fight the system. Like it's just yeah. not happening. I think if anyone's going through that right now or know someone is going through that right now, the only pe the one piece of advice I would send your way, assuming you're open to it, is uh, find someone who cares. If you're talking to someone yeah. and you ask for their help and you can tell they don't give a shit, stop talking to them. Stop reasoning yes. with them. Stop trying to get them to care. Find someone else. Don't like. I think a lot of times people try to get someone who doesn't care to help, and they're all they're gonna do as minimal as possible to not lose their job. Like maybe a little bit more if they're like really good, like maybe 20% yeah. more. But like, imagine if you're in that case and you don't care, how much more are you going to do for someone who's, you know, yelling and having an upset, you know, like admittedly justified upset that they're bill. They're gonna, you're going to do as much as you can to get them off the phone and then like go talk about canasta or whatever the heck you're interested in. So fine. Don't stop until you find someone who cares about you and try to figure out if they care either about you or what you represent to them. You know, you can generally say if they do not care, do not talk to them, find someone else. And then find one person and then work from there. That's my piece of advice. Everyone yeah. else, do what, do what you will with it. Well, well, we when when I share my story and I talk to women about this, I say, anytime you go into the medical system now, have an advocate. Whether it's a parent, a friend, uh, a spouse, have somebody else advocating on your behalf. Because when you're going through this, um, it's very overwhelming. There's a lot of information coming at you. And so the biggest piece of advice I give every woman is, have somebody else with you, have a note taker, have um, somebody who, when you, like I had my surgery during COVID, right? So I was married at the time and um, my husband wasn't able to come with me. Um, so I had to go in there alone, right? I had to be there alone. And so there, I didn't have the opportunity to have anybody by my side should anything happen. However, what I did do, um, I wasn't, I wasn't convinced my husband was going to be able to make decisions on my behalf um, just based on who he is. And, um, so I actually appointed somebody else on my medical records, um, to be my decision maker. And so she knew she, her phone was available for the entire time of my surgery. A couple of reasons why I did that. 
one, as I said, I didn't think my husband would be able to navigate a decision in a crisis. The second was, um, I have uh, two small aneurysms at the base of my brain. So the hospital where I was at had to have neuro on site in case I bled out or I had a stroke during the surgery, because when you have this surgery, your head is below your heart. And so it increases, um, for any woman, it increases the percentage chance that you could have a stroke or a blood clot or something else. For me, my chances were significantly higher because of the fact that I have a brain aneurysm. So um, I made sure that my friend, her name is Gina, that she she was named as my proxy. So should um, should something had, luckily nothing happened. My surgery was great. It went off without a hitch, um, obviously, because I'm sitting right here. But had something happened, she was the person they were going to call to say, we need, you know, whatever, we need to operate on her brain or we need to whatever. She was the person. And I knew that she would make the right decision. I also knew that she would bite tooth and nail to get me the care that I needed. And that's the kind of person you want in your corner. You want someone who is not going to back down, who's going to question everything, who's going to be like, nope, you're going to do this, this, and this for her. Um, I also, she lives across the country. I also knew that if push came to shove, she would be on the next flight out here. So, you know, those are the things that I tell women all the time. It, it, it's, it could be your best friend. It could be someone you just know that is fierce and fabulous. And it's going to be there to be like, no, tell me why you're doing this. Tell me why you're doing that. Move her out of this hospital room. Like you need somebody like that in your corner, unfortunately now, um, especially if you're in a state where you're in overwhelm or stress, or you're just incapable of being able to make a decision, uh, while you're in the hospital or, or wherever you are. When they find, you know, I'm not trying to get graphic on, on your stuff. I'm just kind of curious because I know you, they do scans and stuff for aneurysms, but I always thought they like got rid of them or something. They just leave them in there. They don't do something with an aneurysm. Right. Depending upon the size. Mm -hmm. um, so mine are small. So um, I have two like kind of in the same spot um, on the left hand side. Like I can't remember what this part of the brain is called, but anyway, right in the base of my brain. Um so what they wanted to do is they wanted to put a balloon up there with a camera to look at them further. And I was like, wait, what are the risks of that? So they tell me the risks. I'm like, nope, um, there's no reason to do that. Like you can see them on the MRI. And um, so I switched doctors because of that. I was like, I'm not going through that. I'm not having you put a balloon up through my vein. And no, I'm not doing that. Um, and, and again, it's like, you're right to say, well, why? And that's a question. Like, why, why do I need that? If you're not concerned about them now, why would you do that? And then it's going to cause, it could cause other risks. I also, I also have a blood clotting disorder. So there's a, you know, like I have to weigh all these things all of the time to be like, well, what's that going to do with this over here? And oftentimes doctors aren't thinking, oh, well, you have this thing here and this thing over here. What are the combined risks for all of this? So anyway, no, depending upon the size, they won't do anything. What they do for me is they just monitor it every like two years. So I have to go back and um, get the MRI again. If it starts to grow, then that becomes an issue. Um, but as long as it, as long as they stay kind of how they are and not, you know, too much growth, then, then they're fine. They won't remove them. I thought the concern with aneurysms was that they would explode or something and kill people. What do aneurysms do? Yeah, that's right. I mean, so if they're small, they just like chill. They just, like, they just so chill. No, yeah. So like, you don't have like added risk of like someone pushing you or something. <laughs> no, um, no, nothing like that. But um, I think if they were in a different location than they are, that, that was the other thing. That was the other reason why mm -hmm. they wanted to put the balloon up there. They wanted to confirm the location. 
if they were in a different location that, you know, I don't know, I, I'm not, I mean, clearly I don't know. Well, none of us know enough about the brain, even the doctors that are doing it. But, um, you know, if they were somewhere else in my brain and they were pushing on something else or situated differently, I think they would take them out. They would be more concerned. Um, the things I have to be careful about for me, um, blood clots, you know, big one. So if I'm on a long haul flight, like I wear compression socks, I get up, I walk a lot. That's an increase of stroke or aneurysm. And because I have the blood clotting disorder, my percentage goes up. Right. Um, so just, you know, things like that, but no, I mean, no, I hope no one pushes me down, but you know, they're not concerned about anything like that. Um, yeah. it's, you know, if, if, for example, I started having headaches or something, you know, mm. something, if, if there was another presenting issue, then I would of course go back and be like, okay, we need to look at them again, but no, now they just monitor them. They just okay. watch and they're like, oh, they're just chilling out. All right. Yeah. I mean, there are people who don't know they have them and that's when you see them stroke or, you know, the, mm. yeah things explode and they're incapacitated. I know I have them. So, um, you know, I'm glad I know it's a genetic thing. So I'm glad I know, and they're able to watch them, but you know, it's not that concerning unless you do something like what I had to have, which is a partial hysterectomy and my, my head is below my heart. Then yeah. that's concerning, <laughs> yeah. but, but, you know, like even for that, I had to have neuro clearance. I had to go see a neurologist and he had to talk to my surgeon and say, nope, she's fine. She's going to be fine. But they still had to have neuro on site for me just in case. But yeah. Yeah. Well, there's this game. Some of my friends and I play, we call it bumper cars <laughs> where we we'll go for a walk and we try and knock each other over. And uh, weirdly enough, the, the, the women in the group usually get the most aggressive. But I, I, I think just in my own sake, if we were ever like hanging out and you want to play bumper cars, I'd probably... I'd probably You'd be uh, too scared to touch me. Yeah. You'd be like, no. Yeah. yeah, I wouldn't want to knock you over. The, the, it, it can get... It's usually funny if there's like a hill nearby. Like people like to see people roll it, apparently. But um, where are uh, you again? I, I'm in the Midwest. We have weird things. Like, I think... I don't know who invented this. I think it was me. And then my wife, and then other people started noticing we would do this to each other, and then they started getting on it. Where in the Midwest are you? Like Chicago. I don't want to dox myself. The internet's a terrible place. But oh, uh, I'm I'm from I'm from Iowa. So oh, I've been to Iowa. It's a nice place. Yeah. I, yeah. Uh, what part did? Well, I probably shouldn't. Was there like? No, nah, I want to ask you. I don't want people to like hunt you down. Um, oh, that's okay. I grew up in Des Moines. I say it all the time. I've driven through Des Moines. There, there was a part that had a red road as I was fleeing to Kansas. There's like a there's a segment of the road that is red. That is all I remember about uh, Des Moines. Hmm. Other than that, it, it is not spelled the way it sounds. So Firebrand Institute, yeah. you're founder of this. Correct. One thing that you do, <laughs> yes, I would hope. That. <laughs> <laughs> Correct, that is me. Uh, so uh, the the resulting the synthesized what you do is that you increase people's revenue and uh, success. And mm -hmm. so when I read stuff like this, I always wonder what does that actually mean. So what do you actually like? If I'm a business. And I, and I tap you to come in and help me out. What is, how do you help me to have that result? Like, what do you do? Yeah. So, um, there's a couple of different things. So we work, we work with large organizations too. We work, um, within companies like organizations you would know, um, we help build leadership capacity, um, which means we'll come in and we'll do workshops, trainings. Um, we'll also align leaders. So, um, you may or may not know, and I'm kind of saying that flippantly, leaders sometimes don't get along. Um, and so we help um, mitigate mm. conflict and help them get realigned so that they can focus on what they need to focus on rather than the extraneous BS that um, we often see them engaging in, personality conflicts, that kind of thing. So we'll do that. We'll do strategy days with them. We'll help them 
look at, um, where they can, they have market opportunities or we'll, we'll, um, move the conflict out of the way so that they can see innovation and market opportunities. Um, and then with entrepreneurs, um, we work with them to align their mission, vision, values. So understanding like, what's the thing you want to put out into the world? What's the social impact you want to have? Um, and how can we help you see opportunities for growth? So oftentimes if you're like a running a small business, you get in your own way. Right. And so we allow, um, we'll create a roadmap for folks. Like here's your actual 90 day roadmap, go out and sell and, or we'll look in at team and we'll go, oh, the reason why you're not actually selling is because you're in your own way because you're actually not good at closing a sale. So you need to bring somebody on board that can do that for you. Um, we use assessments. We use other scientific tools. Um, I've been doing this for a long time. So I'm pretty good at going into a room of leaders and understanding who the problem child is um, in, within like five seconds um, and then helping them to just get back on track. Is it everyone else's body language, not wanting to be close to that person that identifies them? <laughs> no, no. Um, I, we're very good at reading the people in the room. Um, and um, even without assessing them and without people sometimes opening their mouths, we can tell who it is. Um, if there is one, sometimes there's more than one. Um, it's just, I think it's just practice. It's just, I've been doing this for a long time. I can walk in and be like, Oh, okay. You're, you're, it's you, it's, you're the problem. It's you. <laughs> um, but I love, I mean, I love doing the strategy work and helping, um, not only entrepreneurs, but also, um, fast moving organizations to, um, be able to capitalize on, um, you know, things that are happening in the marketplace. So it's, a, that's a lot of fun, um, to do that. Um, yeah. Have you ever discovered like a sociopath or something? Someone like who's hiding there, who's like, oh yeah, yeah. You, you've like found them. Do you like? Oh yeah. Do you, do you get them coaching to like adapt into society, like help them, or is oh. it more like you you cut them out like a tumor? No, there. I mean, well, first of all, there are. I mean, we see the. I mean, you can see in the public domain narcissists and sociopaths that are mm -hmm. running major organizations. I mean, look at Elon Musk. I mean, come on. So. Um, nobody's cutting him out. Right. <laughs> but, you know, we have, we, we do, um, oftentimes we'll, if, if it's not the CEO, we'll sit down with the leaders, the leader, like the CEO and say, if you want to not have a toxic environment, this person has to go. Mm -hmm. If you want to keep them, you, here's all of the litany of issues you're going to continue to have your choice, but also we would suggest getting them some executive coaching. Oftentimes those people that are like, at that level that, you know, have some ego issue or whatever it is, they're not interested in getting any coaching. Um, and so sometimes we'll just back away or we'll say, or they need to get to see a therapist and that is not our domain. Um, so we would, and you know, we worked with um, a family run organization for many years. Um, so just imagine, and it was a, a successful organization. Just imagine the dynamic of father, son, uh, just uh, all of that family stuff at play at one point we, I just said, we're not going to be able to help you until you go to family therapy. Like it's, it's just not going to happen. Um, because your family issues are playing out in the boardroom and it's not good. So yeah. But, um, oftentimes if we see somebody that's really, really toxic, we'll just be like, you've got to let them go. Um, otherwise you're going to have way more issues with people and you see it trickle down. You see it trickle down all the way to the say manufacturing floor because of how people are behaving at the top. Mm -hmm. Is yeah. it, 
if you've watched the TV show Succession, I don't know if it's like oh, that. It totally is. <laughs> totally. People were watching it and they're like, I was getting like texts from friends like, oh my God, this is what you do, isn't it? You go into these organizations. I'm like, yeah, or like billions, if you've seen billions. Um, I'm like, yeah, basically, <laughs> basically, um, we try we try now um, to really make sure there's a values fit and alignment with our organization. Um, we'd prefer to work with more conscious leaders um, now than those who really don't care about humans, you know, and will do anything at all costs to make people feel like shit. We, we try not to work with them anymore because oftentimes it's like, well, whatever we say or do, you're not going to do anyway. Um, and you're not even interested in growth and you're not even interested, like, you know, your own personal growth. You're not interested in that and changing your outlook on how you treat the human beings in your organization. So sometimes we'll say no, and we'll mm -hmm. be like, nah, we can't help you. Yeah. I, I, like I said, again, I think it's weird if you think just like, what's the most selfish thing you can do? Just treat people well. It's like, <laughs> it's like if you want to be the most evil person, be the most evil, nice person in the world and the world, it'll generally be like the world will go better for you. Like your life will go better. People will work for you better. You're, you know, people around you will enjoy you more. Like, I feel like the most selfish thing to do is just be nice to everyone, you know, like yeah. to a level, like, you know, don't let people take advantage of you, but like, the, you know, anything to the extreme is kind of inappropriate, but I feel like sometimes I meet people like that. It's like, why don't you treat people better? When, well, don't you want them to do these things? Like, yeah. Well, you know, if you treat them this certain way, they will do these things. <laughs> it's like, mm -hmm. but like the connection's not there. Like, uh, they just want to be grumpy people, I guess. I don't know. So well, it's, uh, it's really hard. I think in this day and age, I mean, we've, we've, we've become so divided for a lot of reasons when in actual fact, we have a lot of commonalities as human beings. Like I think in general, we want to, um, see people succeed in general. We want to treat, you know, to feel like we're valued. Um, and it, and we've kind of lost, I think, especially the past few years, we've lost the ability to step into somebody else's shoes and to ask questions like, huh, maybe they're just having a bad day or maybe they're going through something and um, I should be more um, compassionate about my response, you know, to my, towards them or my response. Like, uh, for example, I'm seeing it like, you know, people, everybody was shut in their house for however many years, whatever. I don't know. Time is so weird now. But then I see people, the way they're treating, like, like I go to my local restaurant all the time. Um, I love it. I know all of the staff there. Um, I know the owners, kind, amazing people. And I see sometimes the way people are like treating the staff in there. And I'm just like, what is wrong with you? Like these people are on their feet all day long, serving people, um, trying to make you happy, mixing up a cocktail to make you happy. And then you're a jerk to them or you leave them a dollar tip. What? Like, it is hard work. It's hard work for them. Like, be kind to them. I, I don't know. It's just like basic stuff like that, where you're just like, why is that even necessary? Yeah, assaults on planes went up crazily. And like, they were actually oh, yeah. prosecuting people and charging them $50,000 and stuff. It's like, I don't know about giving in a tin can that just brings out the worst of people. Uh, I have noise canceling headphones. I ignore everybody. Even when I see a baby acting up, I just ignore it and understand the baby doesn't know what's going on. Right. But, so I know, I know we're coming to the end. The, what oh, are yeah. some, we've referenced some books throughout. What are some books they'd recommend people check out? Um, absolutely. Birthing Liberation by Sabia Wade. Hmm. Um, she's on a book tour, I think here shortly. Um, so maybe check her out. She's down, she's based down in Atlanta, but, um, hopefully she's coming to a city near you. Uh, it's so good. Um, uh, what is the name of her book? My, um, a friend and colleague, Debbie Silber has a book about betrayal. 
I can't remember the exact title of it. Um, I was talking about it's, I think Dan and Chip Heath have the book upstream. Um, I think that's a great book, um, for, uh, organizations that are trying to deal with being cohesive. I think always just an easy, quick read is, is, um, five, five dysfunctions of a team. What else am I reading right now? Um, um, I'm starting to read a book called, um, letting go. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, you know, more on the personal growth realm of just letting things go that are not serving you anymore. Um, yeah, I think those are a few. Is there anything that you're looking to learn? I can recommend you some books or just in general. I'm always looking to learn. Um, I'm not very good with all of this social media um, interweb stuff to like boost my thought leadership profile. So <laughs> I get daunted when I have to think about like, wait, what I have to bring, pe- what I have to increase my traffic to, Ugh. that is something I need to learn. Um, I don't know how to use TikTok. <laughs> Not that I really care. Um, <laughs> um, I don't know. What are you learning right now? Like, I'm always interested in what people are, people who are interested in growth and knowledge or are reading and learning what are you what are you reading right now and what are you learning uh well i referenced the howard zim's history of the u.s and then uh got machine learning machines look okay. i'm like learning a lot about machine learning right now it seems fun that's about it and then i yeah. have other books that cool. i read on the side i read one non-fiction like technical book one non-fiction yeah. for fun book and then i read one fiction book so i'm reading uh crime and punishment by Dostoevsky at the same oh. time Gotcha. Like, that combination seems to keep me interested. If it's just one book, I kind of get bored. Me too. Yeah, I read several books at once. Like you should see my nightstand. It's like, it's kind of ridiculous. Um, yeah. And then and then I'll be like, oh wait, I'm gonna switch to that book now. Um, I'm mm-hmm. also reading a book called um, Yeah, Before I Let Go, which um, mm-hmm. is a novel. So, um, and I just I like to do that too. And I'm about to go on. Um, a mini, well, not even a mini, I'm about to go on a vacation. Um, part of it's vacation, part of it's work, but I'm going to be gone for five weeks. And, uh, I plan on doing a lot of reading and chilling out. Sweet. I'll send you some book recommendations. So one, one one last question though. I I know we're running over. I actually do have time for another question. It's fine. Yeah. 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 Okay. I, I, well, I don't want to just assume. So, uh, this is like a philosophical question that sometimes I ask people and, Mm. um, there's no right answers. It's just for fun. And um, so here's here's the setup. You're a judge, and you're you're a judge. And before you is brought four people. Mm-hmm. Three of the people uh, murdered a person, and mm-hmm. the one, the fourth person was basically there, like around. And they just grabbed four people. You have to give a sentence to the four total people, knowing that three are guilty and one is most like you know is innocent. But you can't discern the the difference. You can't like separate the. Uh, the sentencing, what would you sentence the four people? And you don't get any more information. You can't ask them questions. You just, you get all that I just told you and you can clarify in case I said something stupid, but uh, yeah. What, what would you, what would your sentence be as the judge and why, if you can. So the fourth person didn't have any involvement. No, there would, it would just be like, if, if you were walking by and uh, they, they like grabbed you as they were bringing the, you know, the other three people into the, the paddy wagon or whatever. Well, this sounds familiar. Didn't this happen to the um, to the Central Park Five? I don't understand this reference. But so. 
<laughs> just a, it's respectful of your time. I don't know. Um, you should look that up because that, mm-hmm. I mean, well, just to, just a side note, that was the whole, um, you know, um, the whole thing that went down in New York where the five people, five children were wrongly accused of murder and mm. um, Trump put a full page ad in the New York times to convict them. And they were put in jail for many, many years. One who has um, learning disabilities and um, yeah, they wrongly served um, for God, 20 years more. Mm. And just the things they endured, the oldest one, which I think is the one with learning disabilities um, was in Rikers. And the stuff he, I mean, there's a, there's a movie out about it. Um, you can watch it on, yeah, check it out. Oh, it's just harrowing. Okay. I don't know. This is like the worst question ever because so the judge, like, you know, as a judge that this person is wrongly accused or, or is not. Guilty, yeah. You, right? you know, there's three murderers and one innocent person, but you have to, you can only give one sentence to all of them. It can be whatever you want, but it has to be yours. I would probably, because I err on the side of the person who didn't do it. Um, I would probably give them some type of altogether community service and rehabilitation. Mm. Um, and you know, probably some form of house arrest for a while, at least so that the person who didn't do it has some form of freedom, so to speak. Um, but I would probably put them through a program of rehabilitation and community service. Sweet. And then where can people stay up to date with your work? Yeah. Um, you can go to firebrandinstitute.com or period to pause.com. Um, I also, my podcast period to pause is on Spotify, Apple, and wherever you get your podcasts. Um, we've got a few more things coming out this year, specifically around, uh, women's healthcare, um, that we'll be releasing. So stay tuned. Um, but yeah, that's where you can find me. And, you know, um, I do check, like some people don't check their DMS and things. It's usually me. I do have a social media person who does my period to pause stuff, but if you hit me up there, it's, it's she'll forward it to me and it's going to be me. So, um, you know, I mean, I'm a real human, so I do respond to my stuff. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, uh, I want to thank you for coming on the show today and for everyone listening in. uh, Everything we discussed will be in the show notes for, yeah. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me.